You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor. This episode, we're joined by Deborah Kroll, a journalist who covers a lot of environmental and indigenous issues because she is indigenous. As a journalist, she's always bringing up some kind of information that got buried somewhere else. And there's a story I actually bring up in here about old Hohogam irrigation channels, which some of my own ancestors who just immigrated from England and Sweden to the U.S. West actually started using when they were first settling. And to be clear, I originally heard this story from Deb in the first place. So that was a part of my own story that I hadn't known until talking to Deborah. She's going to keep blowing minds through this whole interview. I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So take it away, Deborah. My name is Deborah Kroll, and um, I'm a I'm a in, I like to call myself an indigenous journalist because yes, I'm a journalist, but I'm also an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. Um, my tribe is from the Central California coast, mm-hmm. and I guess you could say we've engaged in sustainable, what they call pre-agriculture, for about the last 10,000 years. Right. So, yes, although I live now in the southwest, so... That's, that's about me. Oh, the name <laughs> of my tribe is the Haklo or Halone Salinan tribe. Mm-hmm. And Halone is the anglicized version of Haklo, which is Valley of the Big Oak. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of journalism do you tend to focus on? I'd like to say my beat is Indians, as in my <laughs> fellow American Indians. Yeah. And Alaska Natives, Canadian First Nations, Mesoamericans, Pacific Islanders. So I'm kind of a generalist, although I do a lot of environmental journalism, environmental justice, um, climate change. Climate change is a big, big focus in Indian country these days. because generally it is the indigenous peoples who are always affected first and most by any kind of climatic changes, whether or not it's human-caused. Right. Yeah, there's um, one of the largest native communities in the eastern half of the country is in the county to the south of us. And, you know, it's very low-lying country, and every time there's a hurricane, they get terrible flooding. And... uh, they're also trying to build a pipeline, and I don't know how, but there's, like, one county in the state that has a ton of Native people in it, and the pipeline went right through it. And you're just like, <laughs> okay. Um, it hasn't been built yet, but we're we're hoping to keep it that way. And that's generally the case. And it's not just indigenous communities. It's people of color in general mm-hmm. yeah. have far less power to prevent these, these types of, of infrastructure projects. That's why you see a lot of the highest polluting industrialization in communities of color, and of course in, in communities that don't have the the you know the economic wherewithal to go and fight these these types of things. Right. I mean, like who who really wants a coal fired power plant in their backyard? Right. Yeah. There's a you know there's one large city. Uh, kind of in this area, well, a cluster of cities. It's the research triangle, and you can kind of watch the pipeline go boop around it. 
because, you know, they're not going to take that. Well, and then, of course, we have Dapple, which is the pipeline that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and their allies have been trying to fight. And one big reason they were fighting it was that that pipeline was supposed to go by Bismarck, and the mm-hmm. city of Bismarck complained because it was going to be upriver from them, and mm-hmm. should it leak, it was going to um, affect their water supply. Right. So they said, well, okay, we won't run it upriver of Bismarck. We'll run it right through, you know, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's ancestral land. Yep. They won't care. Yeah. Well, we did care. Right. Yeah, and us trying to organize against this pipeline, we have learned a ton from what the folks up at Dapple are doing, or no Dapple. So, you know, like, it wasn't as successful as I think anybody would have wanted it to be, but that really showed us that there was a point to putting up a fight. I think before that was going on, we knew the pipeline plans were here, and everybody was just kind of like, okay, I guess that's happening. And uh, thanks to that, that was really kind of when folks down here stood up and noticed that uh, (laughs) sometimes you can take action on these things. Oh yeah, it's it really does. You see, it really does take a community and and a, and a community of allies to really fight against these these types of projects. And it's always amazing to me that there's generally always some way to do this in a little more sustainable and earth friendly fashion. Mm-hmm. But I, that also costs a little more money and people just don't want to spend the money to do what's right, which right. is sad, you know? Yeah, well... the re- sad. <laughs> yeah, and the really rough thing with this one is if you do the financials, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for the state of North Carolina. It makes a ton of sense for the folks who invested in gas wells up in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Uh, <laughs> they've tapped out the cheapest wells to drill and the wells run out pretty quickly, so they have to keep drilling new ones, and it gets more and more expensive because they already tapped the cheap spots. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, the cost of the gas that comes out is going to go up, so they need a cheap way to move it, and that's what's going on here. This is for the people who invested in the wells. It is not for the people in North Carolina. Like, it's, they're already raising rates yeah. because of the costs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're seeing that more and more because they're, they also, I think a lot of them are seeing that that people are, are not going to, um, how shall I say this, put up with this much longer. And it's it's kind of corollary to the poor people who are trying to search the border to get over here before the asylum laws change. Yeah. They're trying to get all this infrastructure put in before the people finally uh, say enough and put a halt to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's definitely kind of an air of frenzy about this one. Like, you, you can just kind of smell the desperation. Um, none, yeah. none of the yeah. permits they're filing are how they're supposed to be done. You know, they're not doing their basic legwork. You, you can tell that it's rushed, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Isn't it? Yeah. So now it's tied up in court, and we'll see if it ever gives out. Because um, that's what happens when you don't meet your permits. Um, great times. Oh, yeah, anyone that doesn't get a building permit knows that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we've all yeah. been there. So any yeah. agriculture stuff that we should talk about? I was going to say, cover wicked talking about agriculture. In fact, here's something really interesting. I was just down at the Gila River Indian community yesterday doing yeah. some interviews with their GIS people. Mm-hmm. Um, tried to course 
are under the same challenges as everybody else. They, they need to know the, where their infrastructure is. They need to know where the floodplains are. And the Hill River Indian community, of course, is a very interesting place because they are the descendants of the Huhugam, mm-hmm. the people who built the, the famed Phoenix Canal system. Mm-hmm. They they built a series of canals to to um, create one of the, the continent's greatest agricultural areas way before the Europeans showed up. Right. They, they, they harnessed the Gila River and the Salt River, um, and, and of course they, you know, even, even up until the late 1800s, they were one of the richest tribes in the United States because they were one of the, the principal contractees to supply meat and wheat to the U.S. Army. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they are they are are pretty 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 you know darn good agriculturalists. Right. And one of one of the stories that 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 I learned was that you know, the GIS department obviously is tasked with doing all the surveying, you know, where the water lines are, where the floodplains are, um, mapping out the watersheds. And a few years ago, they were approached by the Gila River Farm, which is the Gila River Farm is a tribally owned agricultural entity. Mm. And they were going to restart a lot of their agriculture up because for years and years, their water supply had been cut off by several dams. And of course, the usual thing is the government didn't honor its promise to make sure the tribe still got its fair share of river water. Right. So they got their water back, and one of the things they wanted to do was restart up their their agriculture on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So they tasked the department with going and doing all the surveys. Let's let's put the canals back in, but let's let's see if we can improve on our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So they used all their GPS, their satellite data, their ground surveying. You know, they they spent a lot of money and a lot of time surveying exactly where to put the new canals in, only to find that the canals that their ancestors built were already sited in the right place. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's like, well, you know, maybe we should listen to our ancestors a little more. Maybe they do. Um, yeah. so, so one of the cool things about tribal agriculture is that they're all looking at ways to do it in a sustainable manner to make mm-hmm. sure that that they don't have the the salt buildup, which doomed the last the last big agricultural period here in the Southwest. You know, our soils have a lot of minerals, and mm-hmm. if you don't don't manage them properly, the the salts build up really really fast around here. Yeah. So so they're really engaged in in how how to use water. In, in a manner that's really wise to only use enough water to grow their crops and not so much that they're going to build up the selenium salts and other poisonous salts. Yeah. They're also doing a lot um, a lot in the way of, of the, the irrigation methods. You know, instead of using, using the sprayer irrigation, they're doing a lot more drip irrigation. And you'll see this a lot not just with tribal agriculture, but with agriculture throughout the Southwest. Yeah. That they're, they're really being a lot more careful in, in using the appropriate amount of water and how they're applying that water. 
which of course is really a, a good thing considering <laughs> as California, despite having a couple of good water years, is still considered in a drought. Right. <laughs> that's that's so super cool. That, that's some of the things that we're doing here. Yeah, that's super neat. Well, and <laughs> um, something I recently found out and is probably also probably not well known to the general public is about half the farmers in Arizona are native. You know, so there's yeah. there's a really long yeah. indigenous farming tradition. It's funny because a lot of, you know, folks of the settler persuasion are kind of thinking like, well, you know, indigenous peoples didn't really do the farming. That was our thing. And that's not if you actually look at the history, what was going on. Um, and as a matter of fact, like. So a lot of my ancestors were Mormon, and so they came out and they started irrigating. And they're very proud of themselves for making the desert bloom and everything. But a lot of their irrigation channels were just, like, um, renovated, like, old irrigation channels from indigenous peoples who'd already built them. So. Oh, yeah, especially here in the Phoenix area where I live. They, they, you're exactly right. They literally dug up the old Hugon canals and relined them and started running water through them. Right. And we're still using them today. Right. And these canals were built around the time of Christ. Right. We're looking at a system that's about 2,000 years old, and it's still viable, and it's still being used. Right. One of, I, I like to call it one of the great engineering feats of the ancient world that nobody knows about. Right, yeah. It's like if all, all these old Roman roads and aqueducts are still around, and some of them are still being used, and nobody talked about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, so. But of course, the... You know, the downfall of canals is that is that we do have a lot of of aspiration, you know, it does lose a certain amount of evaporation into the air. Yeah. And it also kind of gives you a false sense of security. Mm. That the canals are still there, they've been there for thousands of years, we're always gonna have water. But in reality, the Southwest is definitely growing hotter and drier. And so people are, are who used to think, well, the water will always be here, are slowly but surely thinking, well, maybe someday there won't be so much water coming through those canals. Yeah. Maybe we should start thinking about using it a little more wisely um, or banking it. Like Gila River, again, I did a story on how they've been working with the city of Phoenix and the, um, believe it or not, the Walton Foundation, yes, the founders of Walmart are also also pouring millions and millions of dollars into doing a lot of protection efforts along the Colorado River. Hmm. And part of the settlement, which restored a lot of Gila River's water, you know, senior water rights, mm-hmm. um, entitled them to about 40, about 40% between themselves and some of the other tribes with water rights settlements of of Arizona's Colorado River allocation. So they have a big stake in making sure that Colorado stays healthy enough to continue supplying them with the water that they need to rebuild their farms. So so they've partnered with the Walton Foundation, the city of Phoenix, and a couple of other local entities to do water banking. Um, One of the big, big... things that people don't understand about Arizona is we have a lot of groundwater here. We have lots and lots of aquifers in various stages of potability. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of them up north are pretty heavily salted, and so they have to do a lot of treatment before they they can use them. But a lot of the aquifers here in central and southern Arizona 
produce really good, pure, drinkable water. So what Gila River is doing is they're taking part of the Colorado River allocation and they're they're percolating it back down into the aquifers. So when there's at dire times of need, and if, if their Colorado River allocation gets cut drastically, mm-hmm. then they'll still have at least enough water to to maintain their community. Okay, so it's kind of like evening out. Like even if um, if you have a certain allocation, but you can't use it all, let's let's kind of bank some of that. Oh yeah, yeah, and then and then because they're partnering with the city of Phoenix, that's helping assure the city of Phoenix with water supply. So even if I don't have water to irrigate my lawn, because yes, those canals also provide what we call flood irrigation here in, in residential areas. Mm-hmm. At least we'll be able to have enough water to keep the big trees watered, which mm-hmm. to me is the big important thing. Right. Um, because it keeps my, my house cool, it keeps the ambient temperature down, the trees aspirate, of course. You know, they're, they're sucking up carbon and they're producing oxygen, mm-hmm. and they're providing habitat for a lot of our cute little desert wildlife around <laughs> here. Yeah. Yeah, and grass, you know, if you do have to cut off water to the grass, it does grow back fairly quickly as plants go, and yeah. trees, you just can't really replace those. That's right. I don't really care about the grass. In fact, our backyard <laughs> has very little grass because we've got we've got food growing back there, and we've got ground cover to keep to keep the the ground moist. So when we when we plant our berries and our artichokes and stuff, they have enough moisture to last between between the flood irrigation. And of course, the other thing about flood irrigation is is what doesn't get used goes percolates into the aquifer. So. So yeah, so we're we're doing our own little sustainable agriculture experiment here at our house. Yeah, that's red. Well, and um, so somebody mentioned. So I was kind of checking up on the agriculture and like indigenous farming scene in Arizona. So there's this whole spectrum, just like everybody else. Like you've got people doing it on really small scale, and you have um, like really big professional operations. Um, oh, could you like kind of provide any insight into like who's doing what, how that kind of breaks down? Oh yeah, I was just in a. I was just that just reminds me. One of the biggest indigenous farmers around is an operation called Ramona Farms, mm-hmm. and it's named after the owner, a lady by the name of Ramona, who who resuscitated basically some stored tepary beans that her father had stuck away. Yeah. Now tepary beans are a, they're being indigenous to the southwest in that, that they are adapted to thrive here in the desert. They're a very, they're a really great source of nutrition, um, and they're also easy to grow. Mm-hmm. Once you get the hang of it, if you don't, if there is a knack to growing them. Mm-hmm. But once, once you get their conditions right and you, and you, you know exactly how to do it, they're, they're really not that hard to grow. But she's reviving the food source as well as a lot of the gourds that people used to used to eat, you know, the, the squashes and not so much corn. We don't have much corn here in, in central Arizona. In northern Arizona there's a lot of corn grown. Down here it's the squashes, the tepary beans, the mesquite beans, and a lot of those other foods that sustain people for millennia down here. And they can be grown, like I said, with not a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And they, they provide very high nutritional value 
and they also don't have the fats and sugars and other things that are contributing to the the obesity epidemic in Indian country. If you eat those types of foods and you stay away from the processed foods like fry bread um, and those types of things, you can lose weight, you can reduce your blood sugars, you can reduce your, your blood pressure, and with some good exercise, you can lose weight. Yeah. And peppery beans are actually pretty tasty beans, so. So how do you how do you prepare peppery beans? Just like any other bean. Yeah. <laughs> you soak them and then you cook them. Right. And the, and the, and another good thing about peppery beans is that is that they are not a gassy bean. Oh, that's handy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is a good thing. Yeah. So she's doing it on a commercial level. Now down south, another awesome group that Ghana awesome or the desert people have some smaller farms. The um, Ghana awesome um, community action has some smaller farms that are mainly mainly providing people down in that reservation with similar foodstuffs. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they only sell a little bit of what they produce. It's mostly for the community. Whereas mm-hmm. Ramona Farms, is is just growing by leaps and bounds and she sells she wholesales she sells bags of beans you can go to these gourmet supermarkets and buy them you can go down to Sapaton and buy them Hmm. and that to me is one of the most exciting things happening in Indian country is the return of these indigenous foods and being grown on a commercial scale to where they're easily accessible by, by the people who once relied solely on them for, for their food supply. Right. Yeah, that's so great. It seems like a lot of folks kind of like trying to quote unquote restore traditional foods in like the, the settler sphere are very much doing it to like make a niche. And yeah. um, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on accessibility there. And, you know, <laughs> as someone from a yeah. working class background, I don't like that. Um, so yeah. that that's fantastic that that's a little bit more focus over there. Well, and then there's another group, too, down in Tucson called Native Seed Search. Mm-hmm. And they are basically a seed bank of indigenous and heirloom varieties. You know, one, one of the big, the big scary things about our, our ag- agribusiness industrial complex is that the, the genus, the, the species of corn and soybeans and tomatoes and apples is shrinking. That's genetic complement is shrinking and these strains are, are produced, you know, to make shiny big apples and big ears of corn, but they're not necessarily produced to resist diseases and blights. Mm-hmm. And it really only takes one big blight to wipe out our corn crop. Right. And that's kind of scary. So these these seed banks like Native Seed Search and others like them who are preserving the indigenous and heirloom varieties could be the future of our agriculture because if if 90% of our corn crop is gone, they'll have something to where at least you can grow corn in your backyard and produce corn that may not be as pretty or, or, you know, big ears but it's resistant to blight, it's resistant to the local nasties in your ecology. Mm-hmm. And they can actually be pretty tasty. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of the cool thing about actually having a living seed bank. Like, we have a lot of seed banks where you, you kind of keep things in drawers. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's also good to just use them, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, 
yeah, they distribute them all the time. In fact, they, they give them away to, for free to Native people, <clears throat> and then they, they sell them at, at cost to non-Indians. So they're available to anybody, and they're really reasonably priced. And the more of us who are, who are growing these heirloom and indigenous varieties in our backyards are actually helping to preserve our, our world's food supply, you know, just in case something happens. Yeah. That's yeah, we sure don't want corn to go away. I believe it's a chestnut that went away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that one's pretty cool too. Oh, and then of course we have cotton. Yes. Yeah, with the, the very expensive Pima cotton. Mm-hmm. Well, that was originated here in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. The the hardy varieties of corn, you know, the various the blue corn is still being grown up in. Hopi in the in northern Arizona, mm-hmm. and that too. I think a lot of people could be could be looking to the Hopis for for even more instruction on how to grow successfully in a very very dry climate because those guys are growing corn with virtually no rainfall except for a couple of months in the summertime. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not only is there corn. You know, genetically adapted for that dry climate, but the techniques that they use are really interesting. Mm-hmm. How they manage to get the corn to germinate, and how they dig the holes just right to create the air pockets so that there, there's a little bit of condensation, which which nourishes the seed. I mean, they're, they're, they're just doing all sorts of cool stuff up there. Yeah, there was something I, I was saying once upon a time about like they're kind of you know you're farming corn, but you're also kind of farming vapor. You know, like when you have a little bit of dew, you know. And you got to catch yeah. it. Yeah. So. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, we have the, the introduced crops around here, the pecans, mm-hmm. the oranges. You know, those are being grown in, in tribal farms. You know, the introduced cattle. And there's a lot of cattle ranching, particularly in northern Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Fort McDowell has a small herd of, of cattle. Mm-hmm. The, almost the entire reservation is open range, so you have to be careful driving around there. Yeah, okay. You know, you hit somebody's cow. <laughs> right, yeah. Let's say, um, I think Florida was the last entire state, we used to live in Florida, that was still open range. So, like, there's still folks living there today who, like, learned how to drive when it was an open range state, and they were like, it was terrible. <laughs> but, yeah, just got to be careful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so we're, we're really encouraged by that. And, yes, I, I was going to go back to talking about the, the agricultural tradition, especially here in the Southwest. It's, it's millennia, literally millennia old. Where I come from in California, they, they consider us more what they call pre-agriculturalists mm-hmm. because instead of row crops, like what they have here, mm-hmm. we were maintaining um, oak tree groves. Right. Which, you know, but we don't plant them in rows like, like you would see a, a, a normal orchard. You know, they were just growing in certain areas. Right. Um, yeah, and we would maintain our abalone beds. You know, you would maintain the watersheds. Mm-hmm. So it didn't look like a farm but it really was engaging in agriculture. Hmm. But these guys, you know, when the when the Spaniards showed up, they they saw people out there farming. Hmm. And 
and it was it was familiar sight to them. Mm-hmm. So they engage with the Native people here a little bit differently than they engage with the Native people in other parts of the country. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. And then something that I've been a little bit obsessed with is um, I did, I worked with one um, one Native organization that was running a farm. It was Yakima Nation up in Washington. And um, mm-hmm. so I was just working with orchards all over the place and they're running an orchard. And it was like the tightest run orchard I'd ever seen. And I was like, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was like, I think part of it is because like the, the family farming paradigm, like... Um, we really treat it like it's the ultimate, um, but you really do have a limited number of people and a limited amount of human capital to kind of put into the operation. And, you know, a, a nation or tribal scale enterprise doesn't really have that. You have a lot more people, you can collaborate, um, and you can kind of see that in the results. Like when you have a, a small number of people, you just have a limited amount of bandwidth and you're limited in, w- in what you can do. And it's it's really interesting to me that like settler culture has really promoted this way of farming as being like the ultimate sustainable thing. And I don't think it is. I think anything worth doing probably takes a few more people than that. And I wish we would talk about that more. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Excuse me. The, um, because tribal communities tend to be, and I hate to use the S word, kind of <laughs> socialistic tendencies where, where everyone is working to make sure that everybody has enough to get through the winter. Yeah. You, you do see a lot more of that collaborative effort mm-hmm. um, to where the grandmothers would go tell the guys, okay, it's time to go go plant your corn now. Mm-hmm. And they would all get together and they would all plant their fields. Right. And because you had more people working working with the land and working this these crops, it gets done a lot more efficiently and it actually contributes to to less of a workload on any one person mm-hmm. you know, because everyone's taking taking their their everyone is doing their share of the labor so nobody is overburdened with with having to feed the entire clan basically right yeah there was yeah. And, yeah go ahead I was going to say in fact there are there's a lot of tribal communities out here in in the west and in places like California that 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 had so many natural resources that people to work all year they can work four or five or six months and and put everything aside to get them through the rest of the year mm-hmm. and then they could take the rest of the time to go travel, to go trade with other tribes, mm-hmm. to indulge in things like making baskets or, or doing art or building regalia mm-hmm. or just kind of hanging out. Yeah. So that's a whole different thing than the family farmer today. You know, they're <laughs> out there working six, seven days a week, you know, mm-hmm. 11 and a half months out of the year. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference, you know, to me, it's a lot better way for everyone to collaborate and you only have to work five or six months out of the year and spend the rest of the time basically going fishing. Right. Yeah. And there was, I just ran across some history today from some, from some folks up in Canada. I think it was the, the Cree nation kind of talking about their experience. So there were some treaties where they were like, all right, you can, you can live here as long as you become farmers. You know, they'd traditionally been more mobile. And yeah. um, so 
you know, if you're coming from that background where you do everything together, like as a, as a large group instead of family by family, they were like, okay, we're farming now. Let's go get some equipment. Cause this is around the beginning of mechanized agriculture. They were okay. like, cool, let's go get some equipment. And we're going to, we're going to farm with some bigger equipment. And they were really, really good at it. And their white neighbors were like, oh no, <laughs> we can't have this. Like they're, cause they'd had this whole, um, narrative about how like well we need to civilize them and we need to teach them how to farm and then they start doing it and they're really really good at it like pretty much right away and that was that was scary (laughs) so they they so then they passed another law where they're like okay well no no no. when we said farm you have to do it like you have to do it with hose you have to do it with like hand tools you can't use a plow you can't use horses and you have to be limited to x amount of acreage per family you're not allowed to share and I just think that's really interesting because that tells me that deep down we know homesteading doesn't work. And, uh, yeah. you know, that this collaborative approach is really the way to go. But uh, that's just never been a part of our culture that we've been happy to talk about. <laughs> and part of that is because the, um, the people who, who basically took over the country and started running it to suit themselves we're trying to bust up tribes, and one mm-hmm. way to bust up tribes was to give every family their 160 acres and a mule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they saw how, how these communities come together and work collaboratively, mm-hmm. and they didn't like that. They wanted everyone to, to be their own little unit. It's kind of like divide and conquer. It really is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely like a lot of this return to collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's not huge yet, but it's, it is growing. You, you start to see it more and more where people are engaging what they call the decolonization process, which is a fancy term for, let's just do it the way our ancestors used to do it. Right. It doesn't mean you give up mechanized farm equipment. It doesn't mean you give up electricity or living in houses. It means that that the way that you do things is more like like our, our ancestors did it, which was to create prosperity for the entire community or the whole extended family and not just mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. Right, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because when you talk about, um, you know, farming is a larger unit than an immediate family, um, either one of two things happens. Either people go like, oh, no, a corporate farm. <laughs> or, uh, you know, or they just kind of go like, oh, well, that's hippy-dippy nonsense. Um, whereas in reality, it's it's really worked quite well. It works it works so well that it really threatened a lot of people, you know, and, and their ability to feel superior. So that's, yeah. that's just really something that we should pay a little bit more attention to. Like this, like I, I understand where people are coming from when they say small is beautiful. But I think to some extent that really helps the people trying to run things to suit themselves because a whole bunch of small people are easy to divide and conquer and they're never going to pose a threat. So I'm just like, right. mm, let's work together, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those, that, that cooperative method of, of really doing anything really mm-hmm. works better for everybody in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and one of the other examples I always like to talk about is there's a there's a big huge lake in North Dakota 
um, and it's dammed by this dam called Garrison Dam. Hmm. And under that lake it were the old bottomlands of the upper Missouri River. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara had settled. Mm-hmm. You know, they too were once, um, they were, they definitely traded, they, they were traders and they were business people. Mm-hmm. So they, they roamed around the northern plains a lot, going from place to place and doing their trading and, and you know, going from winter camp to summer camp. And then, of course, it was the same thing. The government said, well, we'll, we'll give you part of this land, part of your land back, but you have to be farmers. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they all did the same thing. You know, they, they collaborated. They built farms. They were, they were very, very prosperous living down in their bottom lands. Yeah. They were probably one of the few tribes in the 1930s and 40s that didn't rely on the government for anything. Mm-hmm. And all of these big floods had come down through the Missouri River and, and drowned out a bunch of cities in the Midwest. Yeah. And the government said, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. And so they built the dam and they, they drowned the bottomlands and they told the, the three tribes, they called themselves the three affiliated tribes, mm-hmm. you move up on top, and we'll compensate you, we'll give you money, and we'll give you part of the water. Well, of course, we know what happened. Mm-hmm. They didn't get any money. They didn't get any water. For that matter, neither did any of the other farmers around the reservoir from Garrison Dam get any of that water. Mm-hmm. And it took like 40 or 50 years for a, a young um, man from that tribe who became a lawyer and he finally successfully fought for them to to be you know recompensated because one of the things that people found out who settled in the northern plains and you've been there it's flat there's mm-hmm. nothing there but grassland the wind blows it's a really nasty place to be mm-hmm. but when you went down into the bottomlands the wind died down mm-hmm. and you could grow things because it was nice fertile alluvial soil and yeah. So of course the government got rid of the you know the best producing land in the northern plains and made people live up on top with no way to make a living and and yep. if you ever get a chance to read the book Coyote Warrior you gotta read it because yeah. it's all about that struggle and they said that this young man when he was a boy was walking to school and stepping over the the passed out bodies of his friends' parents living in, you know, passed out on the street because they had given up hope. Yeah. They had no way to make a living anymore. Yeah. So yeah, going back to the, going back to the old ways is always better. Yeah. Tell you off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, this is why we call people for podcasts. Give me your soapbox. Yeah, so I'm very, very happy to see that Indigenous farmers are, are you know, thinking more and more about how they're doing what they do and why it's a good idea to figure out how the ancestors did things. And that way you can use today's technology. They're really combining the best of both worlds. They're combining the the environmentally friendly way growing food and doing agriculture with, you know, a lot of the really cool new technology that we have today. You know, the GPS, the GIS, the, the increased, increasing accuracy of weather forecast, the ways that, that people are learning to make do with less and less water, 
and use the water they have a lot more efficiently to grow crops that are that are suitable suitable for the environment in which they are, mm-hmm. and trying to move away from. Although I wish I wish to God they'd move away from almonds in Central Valley, but you know <laughs> I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Until yeah. they're forced to. Well, it's it's our job in the South to just get up and grow pecans already, so that uh, so that we don't have to in California. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't they don't have to grow almonds in California. They can grow it in some place where there's lots of water. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know about almonds. Kind of need dryness, but a lot of the stuff that people are doing with almonds, you can also do with pecans. Um, but but the the South's agricultural infrastructure is. So, like, in California, you can get a loan to to plant trees, you know, because okay. trees, they have to, they need time to grow up. And, okay. and almonds need less time. Pecans need a lot of time. But also the ag land out here is very, very, very cheap. Like, it's a tenth the cost uh, of what it is in California. So you could go and plant pecan groves down here, and people are finally starting to do that. But there was such a long lag because the South has just been row crops, like, just cheap bargain basement row crops for so long that there's not the lending infrastructure to do pecans, which is really interesting. Like if you, if you drive through most parts of the South, you'll see a lot of like old pecan groves and they max out at like maybe five acres because it was always like, Oh, we had a good year. Let's buy some pecan seedlings or like, let's plant some pecan trees. Like that's the level that the, the planning was on. Um, so it's just not a very concerted effort to, to grow something. Um, that's starting to change, but like I kind of feel like some of California's water problems are on us because we didn't get up and grow any pecans. <laughs> so where I come from in the Central Coast, there's a county that has no right to the surface water at all. That's all allocated for the west side of the San Joaquin Valley and ultimately Los Angeles, hmm. which means that you have to use what little bit of groundwater is there. Yeah, you know, there's just a lot of craziness going on in California yeah. when it comes to water. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the the scary thing is as an agriculture person, um, you know, if you go out to California, that's where it's most professionalized. Like that's where the really skilled, you know, like I can run a grove of trees without using a lot of pesticides. People are, and mm-hmm. a lot of that developed in the first place because it's dry, so your pest pressure starts out pretty low. But we've gotten good enough at it that we can replicate that a lot further east now as well. Um, But we just haven't really developed a human capital to put that to use out here because California is producing so much crop that there's just not a market. Um, So it would be really great if we could take some of that professionalism and that skill and just, you know, as farmland is is going, you know, getting converted to other uses out there um, or as we need to retire it for water. Um, we could be doing that out here in the South. The South is huge. The South has plenty of water. It's already hot and sticky, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we, we have the tools to manage stuff under humid conditions now a lot better than we used to. But we're just kind mm-hmm. of not doing it because California is, like, you know, kind of currently occupying that spot. But that's that's the thing I would like to, to get going a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd like to see a lot more of that too. And, and if anybody doing any reporting on that, I'd love to love to either write it or read it. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and then something else we should be looking at doing is if you look at the south from the air, like half of it is just a big timber pine plantation. Um, so there's, I think there used to be a lot of native hardwood forests here, like oak, um, a lot of chestnut. 
and we're getting chestnut varieties that are resistant to blight now. So it's like we could probably do some native forest restoration, like get some of those food groves going back on. Um, I, there's got to be somebody out here working on it. It's a very big region, but I don't know who they would be. So that's something I got to look out for. Anyway. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. If anybody knows, call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Me too. Thank you so much, Deb. There's so much great information here. And just like any time you're going a mile a minute, I want to tie off a couple loose threads before we close this down. If you know U.S. agricultural history, you might have heard the part where we were talking about how the Cree Nation in Canada was forced to farm on 160 acres and a mule like it was a bad thing, when a lot of black farmers in the South around the same time were dying for 40 acres and a mule. That's because the Cree reserves where this was happening were up in northern Canada prairies, where the growing season is maybe 12, maybe 16 weeks long. And in a lot of the South, you can grow something year-round. So 40 and 160 acres in those places were both just enough to barely survive on at that time. And even in the South, 40 acres and a mule still isn't a lot. The legal practice of ordering Native people to divide their own lands into individual family homesteads instead of just running one big community-sized farm, which was the normal way for them to do it, was called severalty. And it didn't just happen in Canada. The U.S. did this as well. The really good example that I'm familiar with at this time is after forcing several tribes to relocate to Oklahoma, a lot of them made extra cash by leasing land to cattle ranchers. They'd also basically charge lease fees or almost like a toll in exchange for providing fresh green grass for cattle drives along the cattle drive routes. These are the trails where ranchers would move their herds uh, from their main grounds in Texas to Kansas. You know, they have to go across Oklahoma to get to the railroad depot towns in Kansas like Abilene. Eventually, the U.S. government caught wind that tribes were doing okay for themselves uh, through consensual trade with ranchers and put a stop to it by dividing up these lands into single-family homesteads. This made it nearly impossible to make a coherent trail for their herds. And romance aside, the cowboys who were managing these herds' traffic and transit were overworked, underpaid farm laborers whose jobs just depended on keeping a railroad schedule. This collision of long-distance colonial businesses like ranching and railroads and colonial government practices like forcing Native people to run their lands in a way that didn't make sense for anybody made for big problems. It led to confusion, delays, and hungry, thirsty, sick herds, and these several tea policies made a big impact on ranching culture. This period helped solidify the cowboys versus Indians conflict that now, looking back, look inevitable and even, like, traditional. If you think that's interesting, there's a whole episode coming up later with Josh Specht, author of Red Meat Republic, on how the beef industry developed and what it had to do with big continent-scale land management decisions. And it ties in so much with what Deb's been telling us today. I'm so excited. Again, this was an interview with Deborah Kroll, journalist with the Holon Free Press at holonindian.com. And she's on Twitter at Deb Kroll. I'll give you guys links in the notes. Check her out. And thanks so much for listening.